My dad gave me one dollar bill, cause I'm as smart as sun. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters, cause two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. And then along came old blind Bates, and just cause he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes, and four is more than three. And I took the nickels to Hiram Coombs down at the seed feed store. And the fool gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. Well, that, as all elementary school graduates know, was Smart by Shel Silverstein. This is Short Circuit your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm Anthony Sanders, the director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice, and we are recording this on Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Now, as that poem might indicate, today we're going to be talking about money, the coin of commerce. You know, the Constitution and liberty, those those are important things. But at the end of the day, we want to talk about cash. Cash is king. And so I have assembled two of the Institute for Justice's most accomplished financial gurus to try to walk us through some financially-minded circuit court opinions. First of all, I would like to introduce to everyone an old friend of the show, Rob Pacola. Rob, welcome back to Short Circuit. Great to see you on this lovely Friday, Anthony, and uh, even even uh, nicer to see Bert and welcoming him to his first appearance on Short Circuit. That's right. Our other guest is an old friend of IJ. Um, he has worked for us for many years and done all kinds of things. He has a- accomplished great victories in every one of our uh, our pillars, school choice, economic liberty, property, you name it, he's done it. These days, Bert is kind of like the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Um, and I thought I'd take him out from behind the curtain, or at least his voice, uh, and share him all with you. So as Rob says, Bert, welcome to Short Circuit. Uh, very good to have you on for your first time. It's great to be here. You know, longtime listener, first time caller. Now, that's probably a reference only folks, you know, Gen Xers and maybe uh, early millennials will, will get. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll. Let's go. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't think we have an exclusively Gen Z audience. So, so hopefully a few, a few folks did get that reference. And, and hopefully they, uh, they still read uh, Shel Silverstein in the, the schools these days. Uh, I know my, my kids did. So, um, we're going to first go to Rob. So we get we have a case about bankruptcy and then a case about attorney's fees. But don't worry, they're much more exciting um, than than those sound. Both very important things to to many lawyers and many normal people, of course. So Rob, take it away with a little bankruptcy. Well, Anthony, even though we're talking about bankruptcy, we are still not straying far from the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, in fact, gives Congress the power to create uniform laws regarding bankruptcy to attempt to treat debtors fairly throughout the country. And 
we often talk uh, about people being morally bankrupt or artistically bankrupt, uh, but we uh, constitutionally and legally, uh, we, we have something different than our colloquial understanding of bankruptcy, which is a highly codified system for establishing what to do when you are out of money and you have creditors and they need to be paid. And the Second Circuit recently took up uh, Congress's bankruptcy scheme in a case called Clinton Nurseries, where a plant grower was going through the bankruptcy process and encountered uh, some unfairness in the fees that they have to pay. So what you have in the bankruptcy system is essentially two systems, one for Alabama and North Carolina and one for the rest of the country, where makes perfect sense, <laughs> where uh, through through legislative compromise, uh, you have trustees whose job is to be fiduciaries for getting people paid um, who themselves have to be funded. And in these parallel systems, you essentially had a situation where one system of trustees had their fees go up uh, and another system with the bankruptcy administrators or the BAs in those two states did not. And that would be very frustrating if you were a debtor um, to, to know that you were subject to these fees when others weren't. And we're talking about a lot of money here, several million dollars. And if you go through the opinion, um, they actually break it down. And I didn't know this, but the fees are pretty hefty. Um, it's a quarterly fee that you pay to, to fund this system as a debtor. And in this 2017 amendment, which is refreshing, I think, because they, Congress actually passed this fee increase because bankruptcies were going down at the time, which is a good thing. Um, so we're talking about, you know, close to $10,000 a quarter for a bankruptcy estate of this size. And what we had was the U.S. Supreme Court weighing in and saying, hey, we're not treating people fairly here. There has to be uniformity. That's what the Constitution calls for. And the Second Circuit, taking a second pass at this Clinton nursery case, decided that indeed, uh, you can't have parallel systems that are charging people different amounts when the Constitution says that we need to treat debtors in a uniform manner across this great nation. So it's an interesting case, and it's one that I think can touch on some of our constitutional issues at, at IJ sometimes even more than we know. Uh, recently, and for example, in our Memphis Environmental Court, one of our clients uh, was dealing with the bankruptcy. And fascinatingly and uh, somewhat troublingly, bankruptcy courts essentially treat you like you're dead. They own every aspect of your um, bundle of rights that you carry around as a person, including constitutional claims. So we had to effectively release those constitutional claims before we could bring them in federal court. So this is serious business, and it touches on all aspects of our system of litigation, including constitutional law. And Bert, uh, how many times have you declared bankruptcy? 
Um, I have never declared bankruptcy, although one of my favorite episodes of The Office was when Michael Scott declared bankruptcy by simply walking through the office and yelling the word repeatedly. Much but it doesn't Oscar's work that way, chagrin. I understand. It, it doesn't. Oscar had to walk Michael through the fact that there's, there's a process. Um, and Scranton is neither in, in North Carolina nor Alabama. Um, you know, it, so it's part of the, I guess, what would you call that? The regular bankruptcy system, Rob? Yeah, I would say, I, I would say that's about as regular as it gets. Uh, the, the trustee system where these good folks get on the trustee wheel, it turns and they end up handling a bankruptcy. Yeah, for, for listeners who, you know, never been through the, hopefully never been through the process yourself, either yourself or, or your business, um, or have never represented clients in a bankruptcy proceeding or, or made claims in one, it's, uh, you're right, that the, it's the trustee, it's not the, the debtor who's really the client there, it's the debtor's stuff. And the trustee does all kinds of things. And of course, that trustee needs to be funded somehow. And um it uh, yeah, I had no idea about this 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 fee system. The the really interesting thing to me is right. So the for people who care about things like enumerated powers in the Constitution, where you know there's there's these powers listed in Section Eight of Article One, and Congress supposedly doesn't have powers beyond just those listed and a, a few others elsewhere in the Constitution. Um, the the fact that there is something like as specific as bankruptcies seems to indicate that, you know, the um, the separate power to regulate commerce among the several states isn't like everything other than other because then you wouldn't need the subject of bankruptcies because bankruptcy sounds a lot like commerce. Of course, modern the modern Supreme Court has basically washed all that away and and commerce has come to, to mean almost everything. So the powers of Congress are very broad. Um, but it's like it, the, the Supreme Court, though it's done all that, has tried to keep a little bit of the original text of the Constitution in play. And it's interesting it does it here where it says uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States is the, is the text. So that even though there's separately the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause that would allow very arguably uh, these days, legislation about bankruptcies, including having different fees in different places, because that text is there, it's like it's kind of like a residual stop on these expanded expanded powers of Congress. And so um, you know the court points this out that you know, even though maybe you could do it through the necessary and proper cause, we can't just ignore this this text. So it's a restriction on Congress's powers or at least, a mandate that Congress's powers have to be done in a certain way, even though you could arguably do it uh, a different way, which is, you know, for those, those of us who aren't big fans of that modern uh, jurisprudence, um, it, it's a little bit of solace uh, on what the court could do. Well, it's interesting, too, that some of these concepts that we think of as being at least somewhat modern actually go back to the founding. Another example would be copyright. Um where we go back to the actual text of the Constitution, and there similarly was an 18th century understanding that there would be a role for uh, the federal government and for the courts to enforce people's intellectual property rights. Um, similarly, the way that we treat creditors, trustees, and, and debtors has has that 
18th century predicate too. So it's also a testament to the the foresight and the uh, prescient understanding of how our society would deal with these somewhat esoteric rights. Yeah. And, you know, one other interesting thing that, I mean, maybe I thought about in law school, but I, I certainly haven't thought about it in a long time is you go through the powers of Congress in Article 1, Section 8, and there's a lot about to regulate commerce with foreign nations, to coin money, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting, a lot of these specific things. But the the uniform only comes up with bank they're, – they're in the same clause, bankruptcy and naturalization to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcy so that, that the convention was – was concerned about the Cong- uh, Congress's powers, but concerned about uniformity specifically in these two areas. Um, and it kind of reminds, I mean, naturalization, that makes sense because the federal government was going to have um, the, the, the sole role for foreign affairs. But um, uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies is, bankruptcies is a special thing. They wanted to especially have Congress the power of, probably because of, you know, Things like Shays' Rebellion that that led to the actual Constitution in in the in the first place. Um, well, I'm I'm glad Rob that that we have uh, these fees worked out, um, even though they're um, yeah they're they're pretty hefty. But I guess you have to fund the the system somehow. Uh, another thing that can be very hefty, but often not hefty enough, are attorneys' fees in civil rights cases. Now. Uh, Bert, I believe you have tried to get attorney's fees in the ca- in the past for some of your victories. So um, maybe walk us through how that works and uh, how sometimes courts are a little reluctant to, uh, to hand those out, although it doesn't seem like they were in this case. Sure. Yeah. And we you know, have a really interesting case about um, attorney's fees. And I promise our listeners that attorney's fees is, is actually a very uh, interesting. <laughs> well, the attorneys important. listening will be very interested, I'm, I'm sure. But well, even not. Well, and, I, I, and I hope so even more broadly, because, um, you know, attorney's fees are a, a mechanism that, that appear in multiple, um, you know, federal statutes when it comes to the enforcement of, of rights, whether those be statutory rights or as in the in, in this case that we're dealing with from the uh, the Sixth Circuit, um, the Tennessee State Conference of the NAACP et al. versus uh, Trey Hargett um, for civil rights litigation under the Constitution, um, and the the governing statute there is Section 1988. It covers attorneys' fees, and like many fee shifting provisions, it awards fees to the prevailing party. In, um, in, in civil rights litigation. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on what is a prevailing party. Um, and in 2001, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called uh, Buckhannon versus West Virginia, some department or other, um, basically said, look, in order to be a prevailing party, you've got to secure yourself court-ordered relief. So it's not enough for you to file a lawsuit and accomplish your goals, but but not get some sanction um, from the court, you know, of that, you know, of that relief. So if you don't get a judgment, if you don't get some sort of a court ordered settlement, um, you're out of luck when it comes to getting attorney's fees. Now, that was a five four decision, pretty hotly contested. Um, And up until that point, every single circuit to consider the issue 
had embraced something called the catalyst theory, which is that, you know, if I file a lawsuit, um, and, but I get the government to change its behavior um, as a result of, of my lawsuit, um, I'm going to get um, attorney's fees because I have succeeded in my objective. I mean, after all, a, a civil rights litigant doesn't file a lawsuit to get a piece of paper from the court saying kind of attaboy, good job, you're right. <laughs> No, you actually file a lawsuit in order to accomplish something practical, you know, to have the government stop doing something that is infringing upon your rights. And so every circuit had said, yes, the catalyst theory, that's right. That's what Congress intended. The Supreme Court said uh, five to four. No, um, that is not what's intended. And so then you have subsequent litigation. OK, about if, if the relief has to be court ordered. Um, what kind of relief can that be? Because litigation often terminates before final judgment. Sometimes it terminates right after um, you file a lawsuit and you, you secure a preliminary injunction stopping the government from enforcing um, an, an unconstitutional law. And that's what happened in, in this case where you had um, the, the Tennessee State Conference of the NAACP and others sued Tennessee uh, because Tennessee in 2019 had, had enacted um, a series of laws that really kind of made it onerous to conduct voter registration activities in the state. And so Tennessee that got sued very promptly and, uh, and they lost. Um, it, basically, the, the parties had extensive briefing on a preliminary injunction um, with, with lots of exhibits, lots of briefing. Um, and the, the district court said, yeah, you know, I find um, that the plaintiffs are very likely to succeed on, on the merits. I'm going to enjoin the enforcement um, of all these laws. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, the Tennessee legislature repealed all of those laws. Um, and the plaintiffs, you know, requested attorney's fees. Um, as they were entitled to, you know, to do under Section, um, you know, 1988, and um, they secured attorneys' fees, but that proved controversial uh, before the Sixth Circuit because, you know, they had not secured a um, a final decision from any district court, and you know, so the question was, um, while it is, uh, while it has been established that you can get attorneys' fees for a preliminary injunction, um, apparently in the Sixth Circuit, that is generally, you know, disfavored. And the, the Sixth Circuit, by a 2-1 vote, upheld the award of attorney's fees and said, look, in this case, even though the government um, basically withdrew um, before a final judgment was reached, and even though that normally means that you're not a prevailing party, the fact is the plaintiffs here secured a preliminary injunction that all but ended the litigation. And, you know, the state never appealed from it. This, this case was extensively briefed. Um, you know, everything was, was aired out. And the, the plaintiffs were able to conduct voter registration activities um, for the upcoming election unimpeded by the law. So they're a prevailing party. Uh, that, uh, but the, the dissent said, wait a minute, um, no, that they should not be considered a, pre a prevailing party because the relief that the um, plaintiff secured here was not enduring. Um, and by enduring, um, what, um, what the dissent meant was, look, 
they wanted relief not just for the upcoming election, but all future elections. And they didn't get that because the government withdrew you know, the laws. It repealed the laws before um, a final decision was reached. Well, they kind of um, did get that in a sense. Well, yeah, they, they did. And, um, and and that's why I, I think the dissents on the on the wrong end of things here, um, because you know, and the, the opinion's fascinating because it you know if you're uh, kind of almost an existential discussion of like what is enduring, um, and um, you know the, the the majority clearly says look no this was this was enduring um, because they secured relief that was irrevocable they got to they got to conduct voter registration activities. Um, and, and I, I, you know, the dissent says, look, you know, under Buchanan, um, we should have essentially a bright line rule that um, if you get a preliminary injunction, but, um, you know, the, the government voluntarily, um, you know, like uh, eliminates the, the offending, you know, legislation, that's not enough. You know, you're not going to be a prevailing party. Um, you know, the, the, the majority, you know, rejects that and then says, no, that's that's not that's not the case. And, um, you know, it, 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 it does say, you know, like you're not going to be a prevailing party to get attorney's fees in every instance where you've obtained a preliminary injunction. For example, if, if you obtain a preliminary injunction and you lose on the merits, the Supreme Court has already said, you know, you're not going to get um, attorney's fees for securing that, uh, that preliminary injunction because the relief that you got was fleeting um, and not enduring. But, you know, this this topic is a very important one because Congress, you know, intended by use of a fee shifting statutes for vigorous enforcement of civil rights laws and and the Constitution and to incentivize um, the vindication of those rights. Because, as we all know, the government is not going to police itself. And, um, you know, that's why there's a big fight over who's a prevailing you know, party or not. And from the perspective of a civil rights, you know, litigator, I think all of us have seen all too often the government gets caught with its hand in the cookie jar, it gets sued, and um, it looks like it's going to lose. And it then, you know, basically repeals the law in question in order to, you know, try to move the case and, uh, and avoid attorney's fees. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, that, that is a common problem. Um, and one that you often have to have to deal with. I mean, I think the original sin here goes back to the to the Buchanan decision and its um, you know read of prevailing parties. I, I I analogize this to you know a little bit like a football game where you know let's say one team is beating up on the other one and up by like five touchdowns with two minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and the the other team just says oh, we're just going to walk off the field. So you know you're not going to get a final. <laughs> A final score. Sorry. Um, and does that mean that the team that was up by five touchdowns shouldn't prevail? No. In the real world, the losing team forfeits. Um, but under the kind of un, under the rejection of the catalyst theory, basically means the government can be down big late and can just walk off walk off the field and and not have to pay for the constitutional wrongs it has inflicted, um, you know, upon upon its citizenry. Rob, what does enduring mean to you? Hmm. Enduring to me means that you got what you came for. Uh, and that in, in this context, I think enduring means that 
uh, it, you will wake up tomorrow with the relief that, that you sought. Um, and it's interesting what, what the, the point that Bert made about the underlying um, policy objectives here. And it does make you sort of read very closely the, the dissent to think about how it's treating the seriousness of some of the underlying constitutional violations and the importance, A, of making sure that those are resolved, and B, making sure that the incentive is there um, to, to bring those in the first place. I, I noticed that the, the dissent had heavy use of contractions, sentences that consisted of two words. Uh, in some ways, the style of the writing was in keeping with the view expressed. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there about the, uh, the dissent. Um, I, I had a, a similar reaction to, to both of you, uh, unsurprisingly, the, the, the other angle on, on this case is, is as with many cases, especially a, a, a case about election law or voting rights is the defendants here are state officials. And because of various you know, reasons of sovereign immunity, um, you can't sue them for money. So you couldn't add on, you know, some some damages for violation of, of your rights in this case or in all kinds of other cases in different contexts, whether it's voting rights, property rights, what what have you. Um, and so you can't get a judgment if the law is repealed because you can't get money damages. And so the only thing you're left with is declaratory injunctive relief like they're asking for here. And so if the if 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 this state can just get out of it by repealing the law, even after you get a preliminary injunction, uh, that seems like even more contrary to what Congress was going for, because Congress, you know, doesn't didn't pass this this statute to say, well, if you're already getting a lot of money from the government, then you can get some attorney's fees. I think it would be the opposite, that if all you can get is an injunction and you're a civil rights attorney trying to help some people out whose rights have been violated, that the court has adjudicated the rights have been violated, then if, then then you should get some attorney's fees. But because of you know how our system works and sovereign immunity and all that, and not to mention qualified immunity, if it was a case where where that could be at issue, um, it's the it's the opposite. So this is trying to get a modicum of Congress's intent in trying to uh, effectuate its it, its civil rights statutes by. Uh, by having a, a, a mechanism for uh, attorney's fees. Um, you know, it, it is interesting that it is actually still an open question, because I've researched this in some of my cases in the past, that a, uh, at the Supreme Court level, that a preliminary injunction is qualifies for attorney's fees under the civil rights statutes uh, under Section 1988. Um, I, think, I, I think just about all the circuits have said that it, it does qualify, and and certainly the majority here is. But um, this this dissent does does not agree, and I really hope that the Supreme Court never goes along with that. And I I think that the Supreme Court would say that this this qualifies. But um, it it's interesting to note that that has never fully been squared. Uh, that a preliminary injunction qualifies you for attorney's fees, even if that's 
that's all that ever happens in the case. Yeah. And, you know, even the majority here is pretty careful to say, look, you know, on this record, you know, we have a situation where this case was practically completely litigated, you know, at the preliminary, you know, injunction stage. Um, And, you know, if we had a situation where it was, um, you know, much more fleeting, um, you know, had they lost, you know, at the district court, you know, level, for example, um, on the merits, uh, you know, they, they certainly would not have gotten um, a fee right. award or not been entitled to one. Um, but but again, like the state denied them that because they saw um, that they were or about to lose. And I really do want to stress like why fees are so you know important because, you know, litigation is expensive and, um, you know, you're not going to have like a vigorous enforcement of civil rights laws across the entire country um, if there is, you know, if essentially private attorneys generals can't get compensated for, you know, their, you know, attorney's fees um, in order to vindicate those rights. Congress recognized that and said, look, you know, these these rights are great, but they're nothing without, you know, vigorous, um, you know, enforcement across the board. And, you know, now making fees harder to obtain um, makes it essentially harder for um, you know folks to bring public interest you know litigation. IJ, ICLU, other groups, um, we can't bring every public interest lawsuit um, across the board. There are lots of attorneys, solo practitioners, attorneys um, working pro bono for their law firms um, that that you know, they need, they're the ones who really need to be like incentivized to help vindicate, um, you know, vindicate civil rights. Well, I'm glad that we started with the, 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 uh, cold coin of commerce. And now we've ended up with vindicating civil rights. Um, even if money makes that uh, a little, a little easier sometimes. So I appreciate that, uh, Burton. I appreciate Rob, you coming on as well. Uh, I hope both of you guys have a very happy holiday season as we speed along to uh, to the end of December. But in the meantime, I hope all of you listening have a happy holiday season. And I want all of you to get engaged. Mm-hmm.